Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's another episode of the Bolton E-Bikes podcast. We've had more guests on lately, which is something I'm excited about, is meeting other people in the e-bike industry, talking to people. A lot of times it seems like I'm talking to somebody new that's just starting something, you know, whether it's a website or a blog or a YouTube channel. But occasionally we come across somebody who's actually been in the e-bike space much longer than we have. So today is one of those days. I've got Jim Turner, the president and founder of OptiBike, with us. Once again, you're listening to the Bolton E-Bikes podcast. Let's jump into it. Well, thank you very much, Jim, for taking your time out of your day to be on the Bolton E-Bikes podcast today. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for having me. I looked at your podcast, and I think they're a great attribute to the industry, some good topics in there. So I'm happy to be part of it. (laughs) Well, good. I have really been focusing, since I got started, on just teaching people about e-bikes because I feel like they're just so brand new to everybody. There are still, today, people that I just assume, because obviously I'm around e-bikes all the time, that everybody at least is aware of e-bikes But in the last month, I've still had people that I've come across, they're like, what's an e-bike? And I'm like, you know, an electric bike. They're like, yeah, what's an electric bike? Like, they just have no clue what that is. And for you, I would imagine that has to be even harder to comprehend, because how long have you been involved in electric bikes? Well, that's a, you know, I think I started deciding to build an e-bike in 1996. Yeah, I was a an engineer back then, and I saw a couple e-bikes and decided I, I could do a better job at that. I had a background as a motocross racer and national champion, and I'd been, I'm an electromechanical engineer with a degree from Stanford, and I'd been working on semiconductor equipment, worked at Ford Motor Company and suspension and vehicle controls. And I said, well, this e-bike thing is all up my alley, you know, with my experience. Mm-hmm. Now, back then, uh, things were a little bit different. Uh, Mid-90s, I assume, were the e-bikes you were comparing to 24-volt systems, lead-acid batteries, brushed motors? Is that what you were looking at and thinking, yeah, we can do this better? Yeah, exactly. It was sort of a lead-acid with a, a, a some sort of friction thing that pushed on the wheel, an add-on <laughs> kit. That was about, I think, all that was really available. Maybe there were some in China and Japan going on then, but really nothing in, in the U.S., but people were saying that e-bikes were going to grow. I mean, there was awareness of them, and there was some industry talk about you know, e-bikes is a future. Mm-hmm, for sure. So when did you actually start building e-bikes? I mean, were you doing this just for yourself, for fun? Were you thinking from the get-go, I need to start building and selling these things? I'm curious how you got started. Yeah, I actually decided I wanted to have my own company, and that seemed like a good avenue. It married my skills and it was of interest to me. And what I really liked about e-bikes was this, what I call the win-win-win situation. You know, they're good for people. They improve their health. They're good for the environment, you know, reduce resources. They're good for traffic, congestion, reducing everything. So a lot of industries you work in as an engineer, sometimes you wonder if you're really contributing to society with some of the drawbacks that you're, you know, you're creating at the same time. So I thought e-bikes is really something, and I liked the outdoor, I liked physical fitness, so I liked that. So it, it looked really good for me. So I, yeah, I went in and said, I'm going to develop this e-bike, 
And it took me in about 98, we came up with the first or the first kind of, I'd say, production unit that would look like we would eventually have. Okay. And I've seen some of your bikes. And this is a funny story because I know the brand, you know, OptiBike. I've heard of it. I haven't seen a lot of your bikes in person. And literally within the past week, somebody rode up to my shop on an Opti bike <laughs> and was asking questions about potentially changing the battery for more range and how would they do this or do that. And they stopped by because they found me online to, to ask some questions. And I was like, oh, hey, that's an Opti bike. I'm pretty sure we have a podcast scheduled <laughs> to, to talk with uh, Jim about these. So uh, I got to see uh, one of these bikes up close. I don't know exactly how old the bike was. I thought he said it was like eight or 10 years old or something, but he got it a couple of years ago. So I don't know exactly what the story was, if he bought it used from somebody or if he bought it more recently. So I have had an opportunity to see one of your bikes just within the last week and kind of see it up close in person. Well, that's good. Yeah, because we, you know, we built a prototype in back in 98. And then, as I said, I was an engineer, the idea of a business, I, I wasn't fully cognizant of all it took. So it was hard to launch a product that you build and there wasn't really an industry yet. So it wasn't until 2007 that we really, the end of 2006, the end of 2007, that we actually finally were able to build some bikes and have them ready and start selling them. So 2007 was our first year selling a bike. I think the first bike we built went to South Africa. Oh, wow. That's interesting that it didn't even, uh, wasn't even something sold here. Yeah, I think the rest of the world was ahead of the United States at that time, especially Europe. Oh, and I'm I'm on your website too as we're talking, and I'm I'm seeing on your website you have a photo from 1998, your first prototype right there. That's cool. I wish I had more photos of some of the earliest bikes that I built, but I don't, <laughs> or I do, and I just lost them somewhere. I don't know. Uh, I've had people ask, oh, do you have a photo of that bike you're talking about? Like, uh, no. So here we go. 2006, first proto production Opti bike built. That's a pretty cool frame design you have there. So I can see where you're talking about, you know, your experience with suspension and, and different things, how you definitely incorporated some new different things into this design. Yeah, you know, it's funny. That Opti bike that we actually, we probably developed that bike, you know, in 2000. But that OptiBike was more advanced than most stuff on the market today. I mean, we were doing in the plans of automatic shifting, turn signals, you know, things like that, all sorts of adaptive stuff. And it, it already had batteries in the frame, a mid-drive, powerful mid-drive. You know, we were even in 2008, we were the first company to come out with a lithium battery. You know, we had a 20 amp hour, 37 volt lithium battery, which is bigger than most bikes have today. You know, we were already doing that. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's still bikes shipping out with batteries smaller than that. Oh, most of them are, you know, I mean, what, 90% of them, you know, we were way advanced and we looked at all that. We had, you know, security passcodes to start the bike. We had um, even looking the algorithms which we use for battery management, you know, there, there are a coulombic gauge that subtracted off the actual current and were more advanced than most of the, the stuff on bikes today. We were doing stuff long ago. Yeah, I'm looking through your, your history here. I'm curious, are there any interesting ideas that you had that didn't work? <laughs> you probably did, 
But uh, I see some cool stuff that, yeah, you were just ahead of the game. I'm curious what sort of things you tried to implement that just either didn't catch on or people didn't want, whatever it is. I'm always to see what has been tried. Yeah, you know, I don't see a lot of specific things we tried. We've had different bikes through the years that sometimes they were too advanced for the market. I mean, we've always been expensive bikes because we hand build them in Colorado. And my goal was never to build the cheapest bike, it was to build the highest performance bike that sort of comes out of my racing background. And so I think sometimes the adoption by people was, it was too advanced for them. And and we still even today get people saying, you know, we, you couldn't build that motor that powerful. It's not possible because no one else has one. You know, our, our motor today is a two and a half thousand watt motor with 190 newton meters of torque. And nobody else does that. And it's smaller. It's the highest power to weight and volume in the world today. And everybody says, you can't do that. You're just a small company. And But I believe, you know, in American ingenuity and that attitude, you can do it. And so we get some fight back by, over that. that you know, <laughs> they don't even believe it's too good to be true, what you're talking about. Why isn't everyone else doing that? Right. And I go, we, we did in 2008 what most companies are just trying to do today, you know, we're starting to do. And I see you mentioned your racing history on your website. 2011, OptiBike wins Pikes Peak Hill Climbing event. So definitely some uh, racing going on with your e-bikes there. So that's pretty cool. I, I love that. Yeah, and that was nice. I wish there was more e-bike racing going on, but there's limited amounts. Yeah, I feel like what's happening is you have like standard bicycle races and mountain bike races, and then you have these, maybe you have a thought on this, but I feel like most of the name brand bikes, when you get into specialized and giant and, you know, the the real, I'm not saying they're bad, they're great bicycle brands. But you have them taking these mountain bikes and putting like a 350 watt motor on it, which my opinion is, well, the legal limit 750 watts. Why would you put anything less? <laughs> but then you have these races that are started up for e-bikes, but then they're restricted to these 350 watt bikes. And that's not pushing the development of e-bikes at all. If anything, it's restricting it. I think it'd be cool if we had some unlimited e-bike races. I think that'd be awesome. Yeah, I, I tend to agree, and a lot of that is, is political in nature of certain large manufacturers of e-bike motors influenced that heavily from Europe in making those rules, and they paid for a lot of that to get those rules enshrined in America when there's, you know, it, it, it's subterfuge to the 750 watt that the federal government did in 2001. They came in and said, oh, bikes should be, they didn't actually say it in America, but they said the speed limits and stuff like that. And and that's, it's kind of a political thing. And I, I agree with you. And not just because I build faster bikes, because as you said, we need to le learn at what makes an amazing transportation bike. I mean, on the one side, people being in transportation with their e-bikes, there's the other side of trail riding. And we don't know, it was sort of, it was arbitrary in Boulder years ago, they had a they decided that the power limit should be 515 watts on an e-bike. <laughs> That's a and, random and, number. And, That's funny. Yeah, well, no, it was some engineer who was a cyclist came up with that's what they should have. And they go, and then they finally dropped that because they go, there's no other municipality that has that. So, I mean, there's a randomness of instead of seeing like what the people need, what do we need to do to get people out of their car so they can commute with an e-bike? quickly and safely and be on par with a car. 
to actually replace a car if we want to make you know a huge change in transportation. And 20 miles an hour and 250 watts does not work you know, for most people. And that's what the industry is finding, right? Even in Europe, the speed Pedelec, the 28 mile an hour, 4,000 watt, is becoming larger and larger seller there, even though you have to have a helmet, register it, those things, because that actually lets people replace a car. Right. Yeah. It's a suitable mode of transportation. Uh, you know, to me, a, a 250, 350 watt bike, there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to go for a mountain bike ride, you want it to feel light, you want it to, you know, and, and your primary reason for riding it, just go fun and have some exercise. But if you're trying to get to and from work, then you're just limiting yourself unnecessarily. At least that's my opinion. Right. And we're limiting the adoption of e-bikes, right, as a, a alternative mode of transportation. And so that's what I was always glad when they made the U.S. law because I was making e-bikes before they even made the U.S. law. <laughs> right. You know, but at least 750 watts, you have something. But I have a lot of riders that are 290 pounds and they cannot ride all these other e-bikes because they, you know, they want to climb hills. They want to ride at a reasonable pace. So I believe, you know, the e-bike law should be a speed limit and a weight limit because you have the inertia you know, the momentum of a bike, which is a danger if you hit something. But we don't care how much power they have and put a speed limit on them if you want to make it, you know, even in different areas, make it 28 or something reasonable. You have a very good point that I've thought about before as well, that somebody who's a heavier rider does not get as much benefit because of the way the laws are structured. So somebody that's lighter can accelerate faster or climb a hill faster than somebody's heavier because they're both limited just did a certain cap based on what's legal. So I, I agree with them. And so if, if somebody's 250 pounds wants to commute on an e-bike and he's got some hills, he can't do it. He's just out of luck. You know, he's just saying, well, you can't do that. And then those people often want, are, want to get some means of exercise that's doable for them. Often people who are heavier have joint issues or you know, they just can't walk a lot or do other things. So the e-bike, in my, our experience, makes a huge difference in their life. I actually have a customer, he's called me, he's going to visit me this week. Never met him before, but he was in Atlanta years ago and he went to the doctor and the doctor said, you're going to be dead in a year and you need to go to a fat farm, you know, and lose some weight. And he said, well, he came to OptiBike and he bought a bike, you know, he took it out of his his retirement fund because he goes, I'm not going to need my retirement fund if I don't do something. And he lost 50 pounds. He was riding 100 mile rides with other cyclists. You know, and he got much healthier and didn't change his diet at all. But, you know, he was, and he started commuting with his bike and riding on the weekends and all sorts of things, all just because, you know, he had an e bike that could accomplish that. So I get excited when I see people change their lives. That makes me excited. I feel like what I did mattered. Yeah. I wholeheartedly just fully agree. I see similar stories from people all over the place who just, I mean, and then if their bike is broken or something, they're frantic because they're like, I need this to survive. This is part of my life now. <laughs> and uh, and I understand where they're coming from. It's just, uh, it really does change things for a lot of people. And Kyle, something people don't know is back in 2009, we started uh, the OptiBike weight loss program because we were seeing these anecdotal results from our customers. So we actually hired a coach and the coach worked with them and we documented these. They had to go to a doctor and we got documented weight loss of people losing up to 80 pounds using an e-bike. And we had quite a success with that. And we had a coach to actually coach them through all aspects of that diet and improving their life. And 
we had people eliminate all our prescription drugs. One customer eliminated all his prescription drugs, went down to his college weight. Pretty phenomenal to me that you can manifest that type of change in your life. And relatively easy. I say, if you commute, you know, the average commute time is upwards of an hour. If you even have a half hour ride that you drive and you can convert to an e-bike and say that's 40 minutes instead of 30. So you're getting 80 minutes of exercise a day, but it, it takes you 20 minutes, right? I just uh, shared that example with somebody else earlier this week. I might have even said it on one of my podcasts because, yeah, I have, uh, you know, a 15 to 20 minute drive, but I can get on my e-bike and ride here in 35, 40 minutes, depending on the route and how hard I want to pedal. So, yeah, I'm getting more than an hour of exercise every day commuting by e-bike that I wouldn't have had. But it's not taking me an hour hour of extra time. It's like, like you said, a win, win, win. <laughs> it's something you had to do anyway. So I almost like to have a long commute in a way, you know, in the past because I got to ride. And you get all this exercise every day. And one thing I found is after working all day and I go home, right, that half hour I ride and I get home and I'm really energized. And if I used a regular bike, that half hour would probably be an hour and I'd sweat. So then I'd have to switch clothes and it, it built barriers. You know, anytime we have barriers to doing something, especially physical fitness, we're all stuck with these barriers. And so when we eliminate the barriers one at a time, like you don't have to change your clothes, you don't worry about the wind, you don't worry about the hills. Oh, wow, this is actually fun and I can build my stamina that way. And it doesn't take me a lot of time and I don't have to get home. Like one customer says, I'd get home, I'd eat dinner, and then I'm supposed to ride the treadmill for an hour, you know, and he goes, God, that's boring. But he got an Opti bike and, you know, he started riding and he goes, that's, I'm, I'm home, I'm done. Yeah. I want to jump back a little bit because you had mentioned earlier about, you think the restrictions on e-bikes should be related more to a speed limit and weight, which is an interesting one. I don't think I've heard anybody else give that, uh, opinion or thought. Uh, and I see in your designs how you are really working towards that, which is different from what most people are doing, I think, with your super integrated motorized bottom bracket. Oh, yeah, the sim. Yeah. I don't think I've seen a setup like that on any other bikes, production bikes that I'm aware of. That still looks pretty unique. Is that something you're still putting on bikes today or was that more of a... Yeah, we're not making those anymore. They're they're very complicated. <laughs> it looks complicated. Yeah, but it, that what's amazing about that is that has a 21 amp hour battery in it. And one of the first times I remember driving an inner bike and showing another e-bike company, I go, look at my new design. Mm -hmm. And he looked at it and he goes, it's kind of big, but where's the battery? <laughs> and you're like, it's there. <laughs> Yeah, so for, for those listening, I'm looking at a photo. Uh, 2014, you have what looks like a, a fat bike, and there is, in the bottom bracket area, you have this kind of, I don't know what shape you would call that, but you know, there's this block, if you will, there where a mid-drive motor would normally be, and it doesn't look much bigger than like a, a Bafang or any other brand of mid-drive motor, but that's the motor, the controller, the battery, everything is right there. And then the triangle everywhere else on the bike just looks like a bike. It's all one piece. So I can, I can see why you say that would be complicated, but, but that's pretty cool. Thinking uh, definitely outside of the box compared to what everybody else is doing. And I can see why somebody would say, where's the battery? Because it, it could very easily just be confused that that's just the motor and there's nothing else there. 
we were at the Interbike and, and our battery supplier said, would you have a bike to put in our booth? So we brought one of those over <laughs> and one of the salespeople came up to me and says, why do we have that bike here? It doesn't have one of our batteries on it. There's no battery on the bike, you know, why is it here? And I said, no, you built the battery. It's inside. And she said, oh, oh, but they don't look like other e-bikes. And that was one of our things of, I think back then, 13, 14, you know, building a stealthy e-bike that actually handles incredibly well. And by the integration, we were able to get that 21 amp hour. Again, you know, that's 750 watt hours, which is bigger than a specialized or Bosch has even today, all in that little tiny space. And it's very low. Yeah. Your, your weight is way down there. Yeah. And so by integrating and being a pain to build, we made a very small package, but that was a, you know, from a lot of work to build that way. <laughs> yeah. And so did you go away from that just because of the complexity of, of building it and working on it? Yeah. Those cases were machined from solid billet aluminum. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's a huge cost right there. Yeah. And we're a small production company and we do everything by hand, and, you know, build them all up. So it was an interesting experience and I think it still has a lot of validity. We think of building some other ones like that to try and minimize space and keep weight low. Okay. But there's some some drawbacks to it. So you've always had mid-drive motors, it looks like, just from the very get-go. I got a great story about that if you want to hear it. We weren't originally mid-drives. Originally, I was going to do a hub motor. When I looked at it from an engineering standpoint, I said a hub motor is the best. You know, it's direct drive. You don't have inefficiencies. I hired a motor designer in um, in America, and I said, design me this hub motor here. My specs design it. And he came back with it, and he goes, eh, it's not so good, and I will try some more. And, you know, he comes back, he goes, I'm not going to design this for you. <laughs> <laughs> because he goes, it's a stupid design. You know, to make a direct drive, it's going to be really big. Think of like a right. Bionics. Yeah, huge diameter. Very heavy. Heavy. Yeah. Very heavy. A lot of magnets. Very wasteful. He goes, it's, it's a very poor design. So I'm not building it. That's it. So I went away going, I was just bombed. I go, I'm going to be you know, the greatest e-bike designer in the world. And my design <laughs> is <laughs> stupid. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, one day uh, uh, in the next few months later, I was out, I was uh, riding my road bike, you know, riding some hills. And I just had this experience that, wow, the, the bicycle is the most effective means of transportation, you know, efficient there is. So why mess with it? Why don't I just put the motor as an assistance with the rider in the bottom bracket. Keep all the efficiencies of the bicycle, don't try and redesign that, and just add a motor in to assist in parallel. And that's literally where the idea came from, to do the, the bottom bracket motor. Okay, and, and then you've been doing it that way yeah. ever since. Yeah, and it's one of these curiosities of engineering is sometimes the approach that appears to be the most efficient, maybe from an engineering standpoint, is not the best result for what you're doing because all engineering is products are a compromise you've got to have a motor you've got to have a battery you've got to have suspension all this stuff and you, you know you have to compromise of what goes where and how much space you give each thing to give a really good product engineers often who aren't experienced in writing and stuff will will just make the most the best engineering solution which is a terrible actual final implementation of the product. In reality, it may not work at all <laughs> or be practical for some reason that they just didn't right. think of. Right. They don't do that. Anyway, that's how we came to mid-rise and that's why we're at mid-rise from some aspects. They're not as efficient, but overall they're more efficient and work better. Right. 
And your motors that you're using, so is that still something that you have designed in-house and have built specifically for you? Right. We, we designed that, and then we have all the components manufactured and machined, and, and we bring those in-house. And those are, you know, like everything, it's, everything we make in like our Elite Series is machined from solid billet. It's nothing's mass-produced. You know, back when I raced, they had like factory bikes, you know, where everything's hand-built. And that's what we're building. You know, we're an exotic bike in that respect. Okay. I mean, that's a lot of work to assemble motors and windings and all that stuff that goes into all of that. I mean, I've been trying to figure out more ways to manufacture things here in the U.S. And it's it's complicated. It's tough. Yeah. And when I started, I as an engineer, a good engineer, you don't want to redesign anything. You want to use what's available unless you're a real ego, egotist. But so I was trying to find a motor that would fit in the bottom bracket and all those things and controllers and, you know, nothing existed. So we ended up building our own motor, our own controllers, everything displays because nothing existed and nothing in, in that format. So we just ended up making it all. I wouldn't have made it otherwise. I could have just bought a motor that would work. <laughs> right. But it didn't exist in a way that would work well. Yeah. For an e-bike, they're all too large and that. So we, we ended up designing all our own stuff around that. My original plan was to design the motors and sell it to an OEM, you know, that would produce the bikes. And then I go, well, I have to demonstrate the motor, so I better build a frame <laughs> and a bike so I can demonstrate it. And, you know, it was just before the curve back in 2000, 2001, you know, nobody specialized, you know, tracks when they weren't even thinking of e-bikes back then. So I couldn't find a partner to partner with. So we just started building bikes. Got it. Okay. So just one of those things, if you weren't going to do it, it just wasn't going to happen. Right. So, yeah. So I'm looking at uh, different models you have on your website. It looks like they start with the Urban Series and something, I don't remember exactly which model it is. The guy who wrote in the other day, it was something like one of these Pioneer bikes. It had the, the bottle style battery, the mid-drive motor was that round shape. It was definitely something like one of these. Uh, so it looks like you've got anywhere from a, let's see, 500 watt motor, 429 watt hour lithium ion batteries. So these are obviously a little bit lighter, more like a bicycle, not the power hungry bikes that I see you have as well. But good components on these. I see uh, on this other one, Fox front suspension. So when it comes to things like suspension, like you said, there's lots of suspension that already exists, so might as well just go buy it and put it on there. <laughs> Get a good one and use it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense because redesigning something like a suspension for it could take, you know, years and just to try and perfect it and get it to whatever somebody else has already spent a lot of time and money on. Right. And there's also large companies like Fox and RockShox that devote their whole life to building suspension. So, you know, it would make no sense as an e-bike company to be developing your own suspension unless it was about tuning them, perhaps, or if you had, again, if you had to get a model that they didn't make to perform well, but they've adapted their suspension to e-bikes, Fox has. It's a funny story. I When I used to raise motocross, I helped develop Fox shocks, forks, and, and things like that back for motocross bikes. And when I graduated from Stanford, I was working on computer-controlled shock absorbers for Ford as a project. And I talked to Bob Fox about I was going to go work for him and build computerized motocross shocks. And we had a deal to do that. And then Ford, because they, they hadn't replied 
they finally came back and said, no, we want you to come do it at Ford. So I went to Ford to build computer-controlled shocks instead of at Fox. So I have a long history with Shot Fox, and they actually sponsored me to go race in the world championships in Europe. And I knew them a lot. And we were using their forks on our bikes. And one day they called and said, you can't use these anymore. And this was uh, almost a decade ago. And our lawyer said they're not allowed on e-bikes. E-bikes, you know, weren't, they hadn't thought about them. They weren't an official thing. <laughs> yeah, an official thing. And I got on the phone and I called up Bob and I said, Bob, we can't use your forks anymore. He goes, why? And I go, because we have e-bikes. He goes, ah, just hold on a little bit. <laughs> you know, the problem went away. So very quickly, that's when he still owned the, owned the company, you know, and, and just call him and he takes care of it. And we continue to use Fox because they go, we, we're not going to sell these to you anymore. But now Fox makes, you know, e-bike specific forks and there's e-bike specific, almost everything, rims, hubs. Right. Yeah. All the, the brands are getting into e-bike specific components of everything. Sometimes they're probably just the same thing with a different label, but some a lot of times they're beefed up a little bit. When it comes to suspension, I can see that there's definitely going to be a difference there. And hubs and, and rims are all getting stronger. We've seen in bicycle history, it's always been about making the bicycle as light as possible. Now we're trying to reverse that a little bit. A little bit. And I, as I tell my customers, you know, when you get an e-bike, it's not the, the bicycle positioning. Everything is designed around maximum horsepower out of you, not how you feel and not about durability. With the e-bike, you have to switch that and go, you know, how do you want to feel comfortable on the e-bike? It's not, you know, you don't have to be flat on it just for that last little bit of energy because you have the motor to help you. And we're looking at more, you know, robustness in the components because you're going faster at more higher speeds, general speeds, average speeds. So everything wears out faster. So there's, there's a different considerations in building the e-bike than, than the non-e-bike. Oh, for sure. I, I think the durability should be a much higher priority than the weight on an e-bike. Not that weight doesn't matter, but it's not nearly as important as uh, just having a good quality component that's going to last and hold up. Right. And, that, and that's what's being found out. You know, now, then now it's full circle. Right now, they're driving the weight back down in a lot of bikes, you know, even with higher quality components. But there's a you know, high price margin to pay. <laughs> yes, to get that. Yeah, that little bit of savings. So, you know, when you, you know, a carbon fiber stem is 25 grams lighter, it may matter on your Tour de France bike, but it really doesn't matter on your e-bike. No, I don't think it matters whatsoever. Not when it weighs 50 pounds or, you know, whatever, 40, 60 pounds. Exactly. Diminishing returns at that point. Mm -hmm. Now I'm looking at the the higher end bikes and... uh, and you have quite a price range here. <laughs> Those listening can go check out uh, optibike.com. But it looks like $3,500 range is kind of the starting point up to, what is it here? Fourteen, Just shy of 14000 uh, Yeah. If you want to get the bike that has everything. That's our number one seller. Well, I think you get to a certain point. You know, I'm looking at the OptiBike R8C full carbon. I don't know exactly what the difference is between that and the next one, but you're at about 12,000. I think if you're going to spend that much for an e-bike, you might as well get the next one up that has whatever's better. <laughs> Just <laughs> that's my opinion. Now, interestingly enough, I noticed one spec that might confuse people that are used to comparing other e-bikes, and that's the voltage 
Do you want to address that and explain why maybe you're using a slightly different format than what people might be expecting for a bike that has that much power? Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically the voltage, well, there's voltage times current equals power. So as you increase power, you either increase current or you increase voltage or both. The problem with current is you need larger and larger wires to keep the resistance or losses down. So there's a desire as you get up in power, you want to put more voltage into the battery and keep the current and then the wires and the losses are from the current running through the wires. So to keep the efficiency up, you tend to move the voltage up. And in addition, the voltage actually can be a performance thing because it's how it's think of it like a water pressure, you know, a hose. It's the pressure and how fast it comes out, whereas the water is the current, the actual current. If you want to have higher acceleration and more dynamic performance, you want more voltage to push that water out faster, just like when you have a sprayer, it shoots out faster. That's sort of the considerations in matching voltage and current. And as I said earlier, you know, design is about optimizing all the different parameters. So it isn't just like, well, just why don't we go to 100 volts, you know? You don't need to. There's no reason to do that on that. If you're a motorcycle, then we need to go to 100 or 200 volts or a Tesla's 480, 600 because they need that voltage because they have a lot of current. They have much more power. Everything's different. But what we focus on is each bike you know, is designed and it's optimized for what it is. All our bikes have completely different personalities. They're not the same motor in a different chassis or with a different fork. They're completely different personalities. Yeah, it's the whole package. So. Yeah, I think when a lot of people talk about voltages for e-bikes, you see 48 volts is, I feel like, probably most common these days. And then I have a lot of people who are like, oh, I want a 52-volt battery. Uh, and, and usually I ask them, why? <laughs> why do you want a 52-volt? And, and I get varying answers. And sometimes they're like, oh, well, I want to go f- further. And I'm like, but 52 volts versus 48 volts doesn't mean anything as far as range. you know. And then we kind of go into the battery specs and and what actually means something. So for your motor, you know, you're running 37 volts, but that is optimized for that motor and that bike. Not a small amount of power. I mean, I see this is 1650 watts continuous. And I think you said that was 2,500 watts peak power. Was that right? Yes. Yeah. And that's not a a typical scenario compared to other e-bikes, but the voltage doesn't tell the whole story. So uh, thank you for for sharing that explanation with with everybody. I appreciate that. And I I think hopefully when people see the bigger picture of how the electricity works, they can kind of understand that, you know, if you just pinpoint one spec, it doesn't mean anything. I I see too many e-bike companies trying to say, oh, well, we have this or this. And it's like, yeah, but that doesn't actually mean anything. (laughs) You know, we we need more information. And Kyle, one reason that the higher voltage is seen as more performance is with hub motors, when you increase the voltage, right, they go faster. So you you get more speed. And so people often think with a mid-drive, that's going to happen, but it actually doesn't. Well, it, it potentially could. The mid-drive would run faster, but then it doesn't equal your pedaling. So it becomes some disjointed design again. I mean, there's... A, right. Then it's not an electric bicycle. It's a, yeah. It's a motorcycle. You can't pedal. It changes things. Yeah, you got to pedal 150 cadence. So, yeah, as again, the, what I love about design is, you know, optimizing a design, which makes the difference, as we say, racing between winning and losing is two or 3%. 
all these parameters work together and you get this amazing riding experience. It's seamless. And the e-bike is a merging of a human and the bike, right? It's a human electric hybrid. So how those two merge is really important to the riding experience. It's not as even as much as you're driving a car. You know, those are sort of disjointed there. Every aspect of the e-bike matters, but it all has to be in harmony. Yes, definitely. It doesn't do it. As you said, it doesn't do any good to put a bigger battery if the rest of the e-bike can't use it or more voltage. If it can't use it, it just doesn't make any sense. Now, on uh, this particular bike, I could go over all sorts of other specs or, or your other bikes. I mean, but, you know, you got carbon fiber frames, carbon fiber swing arms. I mean, they look amazing. I'm sure that's why people said you said that's the, the best selling bike. It's just, you know, if you want a bike that can just do everything, that looks uh, like a lot of fun. What's your uh, take? Because I know some people are going to ask about this. They always do on uh, on the power limits and where you could use a bike like this currently. Yeah. Well, we use it a lot. We are in western Colorado, so a lot of the, the forest roads, motorcycle areas, um, you know, they're open to off-road vehicles, so we can ride there legally. You know, and if you have your own area to ride, or I have customers in California that go out to the motorcycle parks and ride there. When in level three on that bike, it's a class two e-bike, 20 miles an hour, 750 watts. So you would potentially be able to ride on the street like that. So you have a uh, a legal, uh, not necessarily limit, but a legal setting effectively on it. A setting. And in Colorado, you're allowed to have um, a small electric two-wheel vehicle up to four kilowatts on the road and ride it on the road. Oh, okay. So they, they're actually legal. You have to get a little sticker on them. Well, that's cool. I didn't know that about Colorado. I wish we had that in California. <laughs> Yeah, other states have stuff like that, too. So they're not always illegal. And a lot of people just ride on trails or go places and, and just like them. And the higher power, again, you know, we were talking about why limits. On an off-road experience, the higher power produces a more dynamic experience. As I said, I'm used to a motocross riding, and I still race motocross. And there's a difference you know, in motocross, the exercise, I mean, it's highly demanding, but it's all from the riding experience. And so when you get a little faster and the more power and the more speed, it's much more dynamic, sort of like a downhill bike. You know, you hit 50 miles an hour downhills, much more dynamic adrenaline type experience going on. And that's what you start to re you get with these bikes like the R15C that goes faster. It's a different experience of riding than uh, one of these type one bikes on a trail. That's more in a bicycle realm. You know what I mean? We're more in the downhill realm. Right. Yeah, you've got a range of things that are more like the bicycle you would just cruise to to town on and to work on, and then the really powerful stuff you can take off-road and just go crazy with it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I actually have, I have a customer, you know, he's um, 290 pounds. He has one of those R15Cs, and he's tried all the other e-bikes, and they don't work for him. And he's done six, I think he just said the other day, about six and a half thousand miles in maybe 14 months. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Months. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And that's, he goes, it, it, what you're talking about, your customers die if it broke. You know, he's like that. I ride every day. This is his way of keeping healthy and being vitalized. It's a vital part of his life now. That is his exercise routine, that his de-stressor, you know, he's a CEO and company and this is how he uses you know a bike like that he can't do it on a regular bike he can't do it even on a regular e-bike you know it just doesn't work so one bike doesn't work for everyone and i think e-bike laws 
we touched on, I think the public is pushing this faster speed limit, you know, the, the, the 28 mile or type three bikes that people need to be able to commute with. And I think you're going to see some changes in the e-bike laws as we progress forward. It, it's happening in Europe. They're about to change their e-bike laws in Europe to allow the faster e-bikes because there's such pressure of people buying them. I think there needs to be, because you have, in most states, you have the e-bikes up to 28 miles an hour, and then you have motorcycles, and sometimes there's mopeds or other things in between, but it's not really the same. There's this big gap there where the performance of e-bikes is outpacing the current regulation, and there needs, in my opinion, there needs to be some sort of new class that's in between there. I don't know what it is or what you call it, but I think there should be something. Well, in a lot of it's perception by the public. When we were negotiating in Boulder for you know e-bikes on the bike paths, the, the dedicated paths, and they were opposed to it then. This is you know over a decade ago, and a lot of vocal you know groups again. We don't want more bicycles on there. And now Boulder has 55 miles of dedicated bike paths, you know paved concrete paths, and yet and and then they have one mile right in downtown Boulder that goes along the river by the courthouse and all the functions of the government that is so congested with people and skaters and everything on a weekend that, you know, you're just jam-packed. It's like Manhattan. And so they're looking at that going, what do we want 28-mile-an-hour e-bikes for, right? And they're only thinking of that. But then they have these bike paths, which literally there's 10 people on a day. And so a lot of this comes from people the same with trails. You know, there's trails with bikes and hikers and horse people and so there's a lot of congestion and conflict already, but that doesn't tell the whole story of trails, you know, 30 miles from nowhere. What does it matter that people are going a little faster? I mean, a regular bikes descended up to 50 you know, miles an hour. So there's not a lot of sense and often laws are like that, but it's, it's more of emotional thoughts of people that doesn't really align with the whole thing out there. You know, and as mountain bikers say, well, e-bikes will ruin our trail access because we fought so hard to get the trail access. But that's not necessarily true. Yeah, I don't think so. I think, if anything, they're just going to have more people fighting to keep the trail access open. Exactly. You know, when you get another, you know, and then, and then they go, we don't want people on our trail. <laughs> like, well, you don't want other people on your trail. You know, I don't know. You know, it goes along. And so the whole industry, you know, it's been good. It's moving along and it's growing and it's going to continue to grow. Are you seeing an accelerated rate of growth over the past few years? I think so. My experience is the industry is growing. The average person knows more about e-bikes. There's more in the news about e-bikes that didn't exist a decade ago. There's also a proliferation of new e-bike companies, you know, like one, is it one a day? I don't know, one a week. So there's more people, yeah, there's more people offering bikes. So it's it's a kind of I've never seen an industry like this. I was talking to a few other people, you know, and I go, "Have you seen an industry where there's a new company every week? Were computers like that in the '90s, maybe? You know, with a new computer brand every week? I haven't seen. There's, you know, cars were never like this, and motorcycles have never been like this. Cell phones haven't been like this. So it's going to be an interesting shakeout in the next five to ten years of what type of company. And you have, oh yeah, it's going to be rough. <laughs> well, yeah, rough, but you get the internet is making the accessibility to sell direct, you know, versus dealer networks. So you got a lot of technologies and changes in consumption habits that are playing into making this all happen. So, but I've never seen a product like this. Right. The only thing I see 
that I think could be comparable in some way, but it's in some ways in the same vertical, same industry, sort of. It's a stretch, I know, but hear me out. <laughs> is uh, if you look at electric aircraft, just technology and companies, I feel like there's a new vertical or maybe not vertical takeoff electric aircraft company being launched like every week. And I feel like that's comparable because it may not be as many as the e-bike company numbers, but think of how much money it takes to build an electric aircraft versus a bicycle. There's a lot of money being poured into that industry and e-bikes and, you know, electric cars is a little bit different because there's like this established auto manufacturer and some of them are trying to convert things. And I, you know, there's not as many new companies because that to me is just a whole different thing. But yeah, I feel like e-bikes is just one after the other. And like you said, it'll be a good shakeout over the next few years because I, I've said this before on the podcast. I think there's going to be a lot of e-bike companies that come and go over the next few years. And then after a few years, we'll see who's left. <laughs> that's that's I think the reality of the situation. Yeah, and in in so many of those companies, right? They're just rebranding um, the same e-bikes from China. And I get a solicitation every day from another company <laughs> in China. I bet. And you're like, well, we're building our own things. We don't. Uh, that's not what you're doing. Right. And then, but it's amazing how many companies are manufacturing e-bikes too in China. You know, it's, it's, oh, it's crazy. Yeah, the industry's dynamic. You know, prices are coming down, quality's coming up. I mean, it's just like mountain bikes have become or, or road bikes, you know, you go down and I think it's two grand, you can buy a carbon fiber road bike now. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, when it used to be, you know, 12,000 bucks. So I, I think we're going to get a lot more quality for the, you know, in the, in the e-bikes, you know, better performance and everything in the next five, six years, you know, as everybody's competing. And I don't know, you know, what the e-bike, where it will settle into of what it'll be like, you know, what price point will be very interesting, but I think $2,000 is, is going to be a really good e-bike in a few years. Oh, I agree. I have some bikes that are like, you know, $2,500 range, and I feel like they're selling really well because it has just about what everybody wants. You can go spend more and get more features, and uh, I see the appeal. The bike I'm looking at, you know, out of all of your website, yes, yeah, the most expensive one, you know, at $14,000, but I'm like, hey, that's massive battery, 2,500 watt peak power, really nice looking full suspension. I assume it handles really nice based on what you've talked about, but I haven't ridden it, of course. You know, and it says, if I'm reading that correctly, it's 72 pounds, which is just so much more bike in the same weight as some of these $1,500 bikes that just, you know, performance wise, it's just, there's no comparison whatsoever. So I think you're right. I think in that few thousand dollar range, especially if the tax credit law goes into effects, giving people a break. I think anything under five thousand dollars is is going to just blow up in sales, even more than they already have. Yeah, this is a big quality thing. I mean, we've tried importing some of the bikes from China. You know, we get prototype samples, and God, the quality just—I don't know—it's just we can't sell them. <laughs> I, mean. I, I know what you mean. I've I've had some bikes uh, that are just terrible. <laughs> You know, like the bearings and the head races, and they and we we had some bikes, and they had like fake Mavic wheels on them. You know, when I called Mavic because they're breaking, they go, "Those aren't our wheels," and I go, "They say Mavic on them." You know, and you get fake forks, you get fake Rockshox forks. I mean, it's crazy. And the Mavic wheels, those are not that we don't. That's not our design. You know, the serial number is it's a counterfeit. 
so the quality, you know, all these things in there and we've tried and tried and we just go, we won't sell a cheap bike. that's really low quality. Yeah. Just perfect example. Like, you know, because you've got this awesome full suspension, you know, powerful bike. You know, I had one of these companies reach out to me that probably reach out to you. They're like, oh, we have this, you know, it's got the Bafang Ultra 1500 watt peak power, full suspension bike, nice suspension design, all these things. And I was like, you know, on paper, this looks pretty good. Let's get one. You never, ever buy more than one of anything new. <laughs> I get it. First glance looks pretty good. Kind of on the heavy side for what it is. But I was like, you know, this still could be a decent bike. First time I go to ride it, I literally have to have the front wheel turned to the left to go in a straight line. Because the something they did with the rear triangle and suspension, when you apply the power, you could feel it twist. And, you know, I reached out to him and I was like, I looked at it and I was like, this is not right. I don't know if they bent the frame out to fit this wheel or if just you guys didn't do a good job. I don't know what's wrong, but this is not even rideable. And they never fixed it. So I still have this junk bike in the back that one day I'm going to pull the good parts off and rebuild it into something. But yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Sometimes, you, yeah, the quality you can get is just not good. And unfortunately, there are other people out there that will just take it, slap a sticker of some brand name on it and sell it. And those are the companies that aren't going to stick around. They're going to be gone. Yeah, and that's a, you bring up a good point, like with a consumer looking at advice and go, well, that has this battery or that power. Our bikes, that R15C, you know, the carbon lateral stability, like our swing arms, you know, like with the 190 newton meters of torque we have, which is, you know, twice a Bosch or over twice, the swing arms bend when you shift, right? Because there's so much torque and you're going fast and you drop into a turn that swing arm, you know, will shimmy if it's weak. And it just, it's a disaster danger to even ride a bike at that speed, right? Because you can go faster on these. And all, that's what I mean about all these things adding up to the package. Like, you know, we, we go 34 miles an hour or something down a hill into a turn and you don't even feel like you're going 20. Because the bike's just all built stuff better. Adds up. A guy told me years ago, he says, this is when Lance Armstrong was still racing. He said, if you take Lance Armstrong's bike and you take a Walmart 10 speed and you ride down the street at eight miles an hour, is there any difference? You know, and you go, no, there's really no difference, right? You just pedal along and you're probably fine. And he goes, all right, now go down the Alps at 65. <laughs> yeah. One and would be, feel like a death trap. <laughs> well, you would be dead. You wouldn't even hit 65, right? The rims would fold. But the point is, is so the level of performance you're going to ride at that you expect, everything becomes more important. Everything is more important. So yeah, if you're just riding around at eight miles an hour, it doesn't matter probably what you have. But if you're out on the trail or want to ride fast and, and even like brakes, you know, you got to have brakes that aren't going to fade and just, you know, all these things. So it, it's, again, that match components. We really work on that. You know, everything's got to be matched and work well. And, you know, just all those things come together. And so, you know, like you said, when you put, you know, a Bifang, even though it's 1,650 watts or whatever, 15, you know, you put it on this bike, you actually can potentially creating a dangerous situation. Exactly. For yeah. And that, that was one of those examples where I was like, this bike is not good. <laughs> this whole frame design. They're like, oh, it's a brand new frame design. It's good. I'm like, no, it's not. It's really, really bad. I, <laughs> I almost made me release a video of here's why you shouldn't buy <laughs> things direct like this. And here's the things you have to watch out for. Uh, Cause that was a case where for me, it's an unfortunate business loss, but 
for somebody else, if they would have gone and spent, you know, $2,000, $2,500, whatever it was on something like that, and now they're just left with something that doesn't work at all, you know, they're just out the money and that's, that's it. Like my local bike shop, he won't work on all those cheap e-bikes. He just goes, take them somewhere else. I don't want to waste my time. He goes, I, I can't, even the liability, because they're not even built right to begin with, he, he doesn't want to touch them because then he becomes liable. He goes, I can't adjust things correctly or all yeah. that stuff. So Yeah, there's a whole range yeah, so out there, just, and like, you, you really just have to, to be careful about what you're, you're getting. And I, and I have people ask, they're like, oh, how does your bike compare to this other brand? And I've never seen the other brand in person. They're like, it looks like the same specs, and but it's cheaper. And I'm like, well... There's probably a reason it's cheaper. I don't know what it is. But yeah, the battery looks like it's the same capacity. And you know how it is. People want to get the best value. So like, oh, well, it appears to have the same specs. But you and I both know that that's, that's not always the case. It's not the whole story. There's You got to look at the entire bike and everything that's on it. Yeah, I mean, I'll have a $1,500 bike that I'm comfortable selling that has mechanical brakes and a 500-watt motor. But I wouldn't sell you know, a bike with a thousand watt motor with those brakes on it, because they're not going to be sufficient for that bike, which means that bike's going to cost more. And, you know, it just goes down the line. So nice to see what you guys are doing and, and the quality that's going into to some of these high end bikes you've got. Kyle, you bring up batteries, quality of batteries, you know, and, and if you, you go on eBay and you go, oh, there's a, you know, like that's that battery I have, you know, and that's that battery. And I know what I pay for those batteries. I know what cells cost that are good cells. And I know, we have been building, I mean, we've been involved in building lithium batteries since 2008. My one battery supplier said, you know more about lithium batteries than most people in the world. So we, we, you tell us what to do. <laughs> you know, he was a, you know, based in Chicago, he goes, you, how do we design the battery? From every aspect of the battery, you know, how they're soldered, how they're mounted in the case, how they're put together, the cell, whether the cells are matched, whether a quality cell or a lower value cell, and if they're match packs and, and have been tested for, you know, all of that matters in the longevity of your battery, how long it's going to last. And we get packs, you know, we see them and, you know, they haven't soldered them. They're loose in there. And like that R15C, you know, we designed that pack. It's made to our specifications because it's also a bigger pack. It has to withstand a lot more. It's off-road. So, you know, it all costs more. The power connector on that bike costs $25 because it's got a lot of power, right? And we designed it correctly, you know. Just that's $25, you know, where you can, you know, it's a good portion of a battery. So all these aspects of a battery, you know, there's the layer after layer of what builds a quality battery. So you go, but this has got the same amp hours in it as your battery. And, you know, but that doesn't mean anything as far as how long it'll live. No, and I, I make sure that how far it'll go. Tell people that too. Like, even if the brand of cells that's listed is a good quality, that doesn't mean the assembly of the pack was any good at all. You know, exactly. Yeah. The, the metal and the other components. Yeah. So it's there's so many variables and there's good companies, there's good brands to to find out there that are doing a good job. And uh, that's where you just have to do some some little a little bit of research as a consumer and make sure that whatever you're getting is worth what you're paying. And I sympathize with the consumer. I had a guy call me the other day. I want to get an e-bike for my son. I don't know anything about e-bikes, but he, you know, he rides one, but I'm going to get him one. And he goes, it's insane. There's a company, you know, everywhere and new companies and they're all making these claims. And how do you know? And he goes, somehow he found our company and he ended up ordering one for his son because he sent to his son and said, yeah, that's a really good brand. But, you know, and I sympathize with the consumer now. You just don't know. And I have to pitch my book, you know, the electric bike book. <laughs> I saw that. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, and I have to pitch it because one reason I wrote it is, and this I wrote it like nine years ago because it's a basic primer of how do you compare batteries, how do you compare motors, what is the difference, and I just recommend it. It's a real simple reading for somebody that's looking at e-bikes to get an idea of what should they look at and how how can they make a, a more sensible evaluation of of a bike, and that's that what it was designed to do. So it's got some you know about technology and some math in there to figure out battery comparisons. So I really recommend it for people because it, it can help you out and help you make sense of things. Maybe, you know, be a more informed consumer is what I want to help people do so they can make a decision. Well, I know it is confusing. I sympathize with them. <laughs> yeah. I know we've uh, run over our, our time here today, which is, is okay. Lots of good stuff we've covered. We may just have to have you on uh, the podcast again to get even deeper into some of these things. Any last words of advice or things you'd like to share with uh, our listeners here? No, just that I said I sympathize with people looking at all the different e-bikes and trying to make a decision that it is hard. You know, it is confusing and talking to you or, you know, just learn before you do it and just be aware that there's a lot of choices out there and go beyond what's written in the paper. You know, just as you <laughs> yes. did your experience with getting that bike, it's not, they can appear the same on paper, but they're light years different. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jim, for, for all of your time today and uh, sharing your experience uh, and, and years of, of knowledge and trying to cram it into about an hour of time here. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And thank you to everybody listening to this podcast and being here with us uh, with Jim from OptiBike. Uh, of course, if you want to go check out those bikes and see what are they like and uh, see some of these awesome things we we're talking about, OptiBike.com. Those are available there. And uh, don't forget, to, of course, if you're new to the podcast, you can always go to ebikepodcast.com to sign up for the podcast newsletter. And we'll send you a nice, friendly email reminder every Tuesday when new episodes come out. Uh, once again, thank you for listening. I'm Kyle, the host and owner of Bolton eBikes. And hopefully, you will be back so we can talk to you again on another Tuesday. Oh, 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 o